Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. The illustrious Jabba bids you welcome. <laughs> I'm going to regret this. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones. And this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And I want to apologize, first off, for all the uh, nail guns and hammering and buzzsaws that are going to go on in the background this whole time. I'm building a new human. That's that's my thing. We're building people over here because we're lonely. Okay. And, and, and uh, my guest today is... <laughs> After seven years, the podcast has not gotten any better. Not one bit better. No, it really hasn't. And, uh, you know, that that's okay because uh, nobody expects anything from us anymore, Pete. Well, but my, not from you anyway. <laughs> my guest comes from Omaha, somewhere in middle America. And if you're a Counting Crows fan, you caught that. He's the pastor of Mission Church. He was on the former vision team at Abide Omaha, and he's, he's I mean, pretty much like, uh, he's also written a number of books, including Digital Ministry, which you can pick up now. His name is Myron Pierce, and you've probably seen him here, there, and everywhere, and anywhere where Ralph Moore can be found. And uh, hey, Myron, it's awesome to have you on here, brother. Good to be here, man. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're welcome. And uh, I don't know if we, uh, Pete, did you uh, pick up on that volume? Was it a little bit low for you? Or is that a Peyton problem? No, that was a little bit low, but uh, we'll fix it in post. Oh, do we do that? Well, I do. You don't. What are you talking about? <laughs> There's many things I don't know about what goes on on this podcast. I'm, I'm the dummy that shows up and talks. But hey, Myron, man, first off, uh, just welcome on here and uh, tell us, well, Pete, Pete has questions he asks. So I'll well, the question that I always ask when we have a guest on is, I'd love to hear your story of how you came to faith and what got you into church planning. 
Yeah, man. Great question. Uh, God got me in the faith because, uh, you know, my mama um, was on crack cocaine. My daddy was on heroin. I grew up in inner city Omaha. And uh, most people don't realize that Omaha is uh, at least a few years ago was the number one deadliest place for an African-American to live. Really? And so, yeah, man. So growing up in poverty, single mom, dad in and out the penitentiary. And so we all know what happens when that type of scenario was played out in the, in the life of an inner city kid. And, and so ultimately, man, that took me, led me into gangs and at a young age and drugs. And by the time I was uh, 15, I dropped out of high school. I uh, got a young lady pregnant at 16, and uh, a couple months after that, I was facing 100 years in the penitentiary. And uh, it was around that time, uh, there was a dude named Bobby who was a chaplain in the youth center, and he would come in and say, God has a plan for your life, and I would say, yeah, right, what kind of God would have a plan for your life with my kind of story. And so eventually, I went to prison, got out about a year and a half later. And uh, was right back facing almost a life sentence. Well, you're quite frankly, a life sentence. And uh, it was at that time, March 21st, 2002, one o'clock in the morning. Um, I got arrested and I'm in this jail cell, man. And I you know, made a few phone calls. And after that, I fell on my knees that finally hit rock bottom. And I just, I don't know, said a, a little tiny big prayer and just said, hey, God, I'm destroying my life if you're real change me and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And so that really catalyzed this journey of walking with Jesus. And uh, every, the rest is history. You know, I sat in jail for a couple months, um, got sentenced to 14 or 30 years in the penitentiary at the age of 18. And uh, yeah, man, they sent me to prison. And that's where my faith journey started, started rocking out, man. And, and so I spent a significant amount of time in, the, in prison, wasn't supposed to get out. Uh, for a very, very long time. But uh, seven months later, the law changed in my favor. It was a miracle. Uh, God had told me after I got sentenced that he would get me out of prison so I can go plant churches. I didn't know what that meant uh, because my paradigm of church was an old black man, a Cadillac sleeping with his secretary wanting my money. <laughs> so that was my you know, perception. So I'm thinking, God, I don't want anything to do with that. But he slowly but surely started to change my paradigm. And uh, I got released uh, from prison a little, a, little, a little under eight years and uh, went to college, met a dude named Ron Dulchler, who uh, was a white dude in the hood planting churches. And uh, so he took me in. When I got out, we planted our first church in the same hood I grew up in. And uh, it became insanely successful. Young people from all over, um, all over the city, spe specifically the inner city, um, just like me coming to faith in Christ. And uh, so that was my introduction to church planting, uh, getting out the penitentiary. I was only out for a couple months and then I was on a launch team. We ended up launching this church in the hood. I was in the same neighborhood I was a gangbanger in. So that was, that's kind of the long, the short version of a very, very long story. I like it. Thank you. Yeah. That's a, that's quite a story, Myron. That's amazing. Kind of reminds so, me of, uh, of my life growing up in the, uh, the uh, white suburban hood of uh, San Francisco and uh, yeah, uh, no jail time, but uh, yeah, no, I guess it doesn't remind me of my story at all. <laughs> no, no. 
Oh, that's uh, that's amazing because you know one of the cool things, Myron, is you're you're an entrepreneur now. I mean, entrepreneurial, you know, business's mission, and you know, kind of rolling like Paul did in the first century. That's that's your style now. Tell us a little bit about some of your entrepreneurial ventures and how they've tied in with ministry and church planting. Yeah, so my second my second church plant, um, I've been a part of the first one for a couple of years, and and the Holy Spirit really was nagging me a little bit to, to go plant another church. And so I, I just kind of jumped and said, okay, I asked him where he said, go to Colorado. Um, so I told our staff, Hey, God told me to go to Colorado and, uh, got a launch team. We all moved out there. The only problem with that was, uh, that I was still on parole. I was a pastor on parole. So I, <laughs> I had to go to my parole officer and tell him, um, Hey, God told me to go start a church. And that's a whole another story. Anyway, I ended up in Colorado, planted a church, ran out of money in a year and a half and said, God, what do I do? And so I went into my house, grabbed a uh, some baking soda, a toothbrush, a Kirby vacuum. And I went and applied for a business uh, doing um, car detailing, car detailing. Mm -hmm. Put my little suit on, went down to the local car dealer, said, I'm the chief executive officer <laughs> uh, and founder of Front Range Detailing, would love to start a, a contract with you, a relationship with you. They said yes. And that was, I was off to the races. And uh, three to six months later, it blew up, got insanely successful. I was hiring guys, getting out the penitentiary, uh, growing a staff of, of uh, employees up to 13 people. And so here I am, a, a side hustle pastor, running a successful detailing company, and, uh, and then it hit me. Uh, what if I could start an organization helping um, people like me uh, launch companies like this who wouldn't have a chance at becoming an entrepreneur? And so we launched Thrive, which was an inner city um, entrepreneurial incubator. The mayor got behind it, gave us a million bucks. And uh, right before she gave us the money, God told me to go back to Omaha and start more churches. So that's and so that's kind of been my thing. I've been starting churches. I've been side hustling. And uh, a few years ago, after I had got back uh, to Omaha, um, it was hailing outside because, you know, the Midwest is big for hail. And I called my friend. And I said, hey, man, money's falling from the sky. And he said, what in the world do you mean you've lost it all? And I said, no, man, money is really falling from the sky. It's hailing outside. Let's start a roofing business. And so <laughs> with no history of roofing, black people don't even get on roofs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we start this roofing company. He had the roofing experience. I had the kind of the business, you know, entrepreneurial side of things, startup. And then we started this company. It's become wildly successful. And the whole reason why I really... I've gotten into the whole idea of entrepreneurship, business's mission, side hustle pastoring, is I wanted to start companies that that really helped what we did in the inner city in terms of ministry go forward faster. Mm. And the second reason is most inner city churches broke and we're, we're in poverty. And so I can't expect, you know, I, I can't expect, but the reality is people don't have any money and we have to disciple people into generosity from wh where I'm from. And so um, I said, man, let's lead the way. Let's uh, put money back into ministry. Let's raise up more companies. And, and obviously, we've been doing that for a while now. It's been amazing. That's so cool. And I know you're speaking Pete's love language right there. Man, there are so many things about you, Myron, to respect. And I really hope that 
um, our listeners will check you out, um, myronpierce.com and, um, you know, just uh, tune into a lot of what you're saying. Cause a lot of what you're saying is stuff that a lot of people don't say. Um, a lot of people don't, um, you know, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast will find a lot of synergy in a very, you know, highly apostolic approach to things. Um, that's kind of how we roll on the podcast. And uh, we're dysfunctional and jacked up, and we know it. And uh, and that's that's how apostolics feel in in the whole family of God ministry. But um, so I appreciate that. But there is so much, and I'm I'm guessing Pete's going to probably want you on on his other podcast to really unpack a lot of uh, ministry stuff. But the reason I asked you on here today was obviously we had a tragedy um, that goes on, you know, frequently in this country. Um, Pete and I. Uh, planted a church in inner city Long Beach um, years ago, and we've had our own members um, shot in the back, um, you know, by police and killed. And you know, our, our it's something that you see on the news, but it's something that that isn't foreign to us. And yet, when you see something like what unfolded with the Ahmad Arbery case, um, it 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 was so devastating and heartbreaking, but I think what, what was probably the worst thing about it, besides the fact that a young man lost his life um, in cold blood and murder, is the fact that this is going on, and, it, and, it, and this is not an isolated case. It's just that video footage surfaced that um, meant that accountability uh, had to happen. And so the, the whole idea that this is going on that we don't even know about, um, you know, what, if this video hadn't surfaced, it's, this just would have been just another day yep. in somebody's neighborhood. And so the reason that I had you come on was, um, obviously we know each other outside of this, but, um, you, you post an article and I just want to read it. It's short. So everybody, um, this is not reading time with Peyton. Did, did you long. get permission from the author? Just, I did not. I did not. Can I read this? Do I have that's, permission? That's, that's an apostolic leader for you. Go ahead, man. Do it. <laughs> hey, it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission, right? There you go. <laughs> How many times has that got us in trouble, Pete? <laughs> With my new role at Exponential, they asked recently, so uh, do they know about the Winnebago and the flying dolphins around the conference room? I'm like, nope, nope, don't tell them. So, uh, Pete and I might have just taken some liberties over the years at the conference, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. So, uh, but, but this is short. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to talk. Um, I don't want to talk about your 10 steps. You need to go to the article at myronpierce.com. That's M-Y-R-O-N-P-I-E-R-C-E. Myron gives 10 things we can do. And it's up to you if you want to talk about it. But he says, here are my thoughts. What happened in Georgia is a tragedy. It elevates the ongoing fight that we as blacks have to face every single day. My heart grieves for the mother of Ahmad. Today I was out on a walk. I'm on a sabbatical and a few people noticeably chose to walk on the other side of the street as if I was a threat. This is a small drop in the bucket as to what Ahmad experienced. Ahmad was gunned down and murdered in cold blood. What's even more alarming is that this didn't just happen. This happened a few months ago. My fear is that this would have never gone viral had there not been footage to show what happened. This would have been another classic example of how America has constantly swept the blood of my forefathers under the rug. We are hurt, grieving, outraged, and honestly want to tear something up right now. I wonder when and how God will use this to raise the banner of compassion, justice, and honor in the days ahead. 
My fear is that in a few short months, we'll go back to life as usual and forget about Ahmad. We'll forget about the obligation to let justice roll down. We have a long ways to go in this country. We have a moral obligation to work towards our kids and our grandkids having a world where they can be free to live out the divine design and dream on the inside of them. That will never happen if we don't act now. We must be vigilant in our approach, wise in our decisions, and discerning in our actions. Here are some facts. Our system is broken. We are not equal. The lines of division are still present. And then you kick in to what we can do. So I'm just going to kind of stand back and let you um, speak into this, Myron. Thanks for writing that. And, um, you know, let's, let's talk. Yeah, man, I, it's, I had somebody, I had somebody, you know, what I, what I did was that, that, um, that post or that blog, uh, went a little viral and the Holy spirit really, um, put it on my heart to go even deeper into my thoughts behind that. And so what I did was extended that blog into a book. I'm releasing it on the 20th. And, and one of the things that, that I, I, I talked about was, um, I had somebody hit me up and say, Hey, I know this is a tragedy, but why did, why does everybody forget about the black on black crime? And the blacks killing blacks. And that stung, man, like it's so stung on the inside of me because it's because like my impression of that was, okay, uh, this murder was not good, but y'all killing each other anyway. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those are two separate but connected conversations that, yes, need to happen. But when when we preface a conversation with but. We just cancel everything out. You know what I yep. mean? And, yep. and and so it's just like when when I when I think of stuff like that, man, I'm just thinking, man, where's where's the empathy? I think one of the things that we lose in this conversation is empathy. And and it's it's harder for us to have empathy when proximity when we're not in proximity to the tragedy. You know what I'm saying? And and and, it, and so and so one of the things I've been talking about is hey, if we're gonna have an honest discussion. And, and even move beyond dialogue into action, then it's going to require us to re-engage what it means to have empathy uh, for one another, because that's one of the things that I am not seeing in the conversation that warrants us to go back to some simple EQ. You know, you know, one of the things that my um, my nephew, who's a guy I deeply respect. Um, his name's Tadis Ross. I give him a little shout out there. He just got teacher of the year for working with kids in inner city LA. And, um, you know, he, he, he said this and he said, I, I know this is going to sound cold, but he goes, when a school shooting happens in America, everybody freaks out. And he goes, and I'm, I'm I look, I, 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 I grieve and I mourn with you. But let me say this clearly. This is nothing new. It's just finally affected white kids. And when it affects white kids, it becomes a big argument and a big thing in America. He goes, nobody cared when it was black kids. And that's been happening for decades in black neighborhoods for years. And nobody never hit the news and nobody ever talks about it. When he said that, dude, my jaw hit the freaking table. Like, are you kidding me? Like, The, you, you don't you don't realize that. And and so what you're saying about we're not equal, you know, all these things, you're one man, I I agree one hundred percent. That that is the case. 
So, you know, that. Yeah. And even to like when he, even to what, what, what he said was the reason why the, the reason why there's such a large conversation when there's a shooting happening is that's the priority of the majority. Yeah. And so like, what, and, and that's the whole issue of like, is that's why I say we're not equal because if we were equal, then the priority would be raised for all people, all people's lives. I was on a, a on a, on a panel discussion at a church one time. And that's, this is when like black lives matter just was like, boom, it's everybody talking black lives matter. And then the conversation was, well, don't all lives matter again. That's the same kind of concept behind black, the whole black on black. And one of the things that I said, Peyton and, um, and Pete was, um, imagine for a second, uh, you're in your house and you come outside and um, and then next door, there's a there's a fire that the, the house next door is in flames. Right. But I come outside my house and it's not my house is fine, but the house next door, it's in flames. The fire department comes out and tends to the fire and not tend to my house. Because for the for the for the immediate the immediate presence or the immediate priority in that moment is not my house. The immediate priority is the house that's on fire. And so even with the whole Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter was saying, hey, the house is on fire. But other people were saying, no, what about our house? Don't don't all houses matter? And we're like, yes, obviously all houses matter. But the one that's on fire needs our attention. And I think that's the conversation that we need to be having is that like. All lives matter, yes, but the lives that we're, we're losing at an alarming rate are typically uh, black lives. And that's been the, the megaphone, the, the soapbox I've been on for the last couple of years. Man. And I, I think, too, part of, the, part of the problem is the communication issue, because <clears throat> when people say black lives matter, they mean one thing, but what people are hearing is black lives matter more than yours, which is not true. And it's not what the saying is, right. but that's what white people are hearing. And what really black people are saying is black lives matter also. Right. But that's not what white. So there's like this communication issue going on and each side is not hearing what the other side is saying. So then white people come out and say, no, all lives matter. Well, that's telling black people is, well, no, no, our lives are just as important or more important. And we're going to totally negate everything that you just said, because that doesn't mean anything to us. Right. And there's like this communication issue going on. And it's literally like a syntax thing, because <clears throat> what people are saying is not what the other side is hearing. And it's, it's just the meaning behind it is different. Yeah. You know, Bono uh, from U2, um, he, he made a statement, you know, if we take it out of the American context, he made the same point in a different way, because obviously, you know, he's, he's very involved in um, uh, helping, uh, you know, extreme, reduce extreme poverty all over the world. And back, you know, maybe in the early 2000s under the Bush administration, he kept making phone calls to the the GOP members of Congress. And he's like, hey, you know, and he's like, I thought I'd never get in the door with these guys. But because of who I was, I could. And he goes, I kept asking this question. 
because he goes, Bush did more to reduce or to give aid and reduce the debt, Afri- you know, Africa's national debt than any other of the presidents combined. He goes, and it's because of this. All I did was call the GOPs. We talked about music. We, we, we gassed a bit, but he goes, but I kept asking this question and presenting this problem. I'd say 30,000 children died wow. yesterday and 30,000 children died the day before that. And he goes, and I know I'm an Irishman. I'm not an American, but I know that everybody goes, yeah, but those were black kids. Those were, those were people in Africa. They're, they're poor. It's, and he, he says, the way I got people to listen is I said, what if the narrative was 30,000 white kids died yesterday? Mm-hmm. Now, for a guy that's outside of America, to put it like it's stung, like yeah. exactly to these Ross's, exactly the Black Lives Matter is, can you just hear that 30,000 black kids died mm-hmm. and, and not want to do something about that? Like that's, it's, it's wrong. And, and the worst prejudice is always the one that we don't see. And I think what was important about your article and what I think is important about this discussion is what I think the white church hasn't realized yet is the same thing that Martin Luther King Jr. was saying in letters to from the Birmingham jail. If you've ever read that, if you've never read that letter, you can read it free. It's online. It will take you maybe 20 minutes to read through it. It is a long letter, but it is prophetic and profound. The gist of that letter is him sitting in Birmingham as an American and who he writes it to is white pastors. And he says in there, where are you? Where are you? Why am I here? And you're not here with me. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Why are you not advocating for what's right? If you're silent, we will not win. And he was right. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm not the expert on this, so I I'm, but I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> I talked yeah. too long. Sorry, Myra. You're my no, guest. No, man. I'm so glad you. If you're listening, please go go read that because um, I, I, I here's what I had a conversation with somebody with a pastor, and I said, and I even said this in a book. I said, listen, uh, you make because what I hear from pastors is we don't know what to say. We feel guilty with all these, all these feelings. And I'm like, I understand that. And I said, when someone is in, when someone is grieving, right, the blessing of presence is better than you even saying anything. But in this context, if you say nothing, what we feel, what we get is you're not, you're not with us. Mm. If you say nothing, you're not with us. Silence is agreement with 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 the tragedy that is happening and and that's one of the things that that I think is is also missing it's like okay will you just say something you know i i, I said this when i was uh when i was hanging out with the uh, barna group and tom rainer the other day and and i said hey hey can you like can you imagine um like not saying, like, can you imagine not saying anything and in, in the impression that gives uh, your brothers and sisters? And you made a point, Peyton, that, that, Martin Luther King, that Martin Luther King made. Regardless of whether or not we black or, we're black or white, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. <laughs> like, okay, let's, let's, 
Now, I, I wouldn't dismiss this, the fact that I'm a black man, because I think that's a that's a, a biblical mandate that ethnic ethnicity matters. Um, but even before I'm a black man, I'm a son of God. And 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 if we think about if I know if my brother, if my blood brother was was about to die or, or was if there's nothing my kids, if there's nothing I wouldn't do. And I think if we can move towards that posture of there's nothing I wouldn't do to make sure that my brothers and sisters, but whether black, brown or whatnot, to 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 be present. I had a, I had a, a conversation with one of my friends and he leads a church. And he was having a conversation with his overseer one day and he said, man. I, I would love to have a diverse church. This is a white dude saying this. He's like, man, I would love to. And, he, and he's going on and on. And his overseer ha- has a church and it's a multi-ethnic church. And, and his overseer turns to him and says, you don't, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want a diverse church. You don't want a church full of black people and white people. And, and so they get into an argument. And finally, his overseer says, until you're convinced that you need black people, your church will never be diverse. And I think in the area of, this, of justice, until we're convinced that justice is and should be for everybody, we'll never say anything. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the guys that we interviewed on this podcast a couple of years ago, his name is Alex Early. Um, do you remember where he was based out of, Peyton? Uh, he's up Pacific Northwest. Is it somewhere near Seattle? I I, can't, I don't remember where he was at, but um, I remember I remember he was a bar back and then got asked if he wanted to start his church in that bar because they didn't use it Sunday mornings, and so he did. It was like smelled like puke and alcohol Sunday morning. It was great, right? One of the one of the coolest stories. So um, we're we're connected on Facebook. I mean, we're you know Facebook friends. It's not like I've ever had a conversation with him outside of the podcast that we did. And he put up this one line post on Facebook that was like a lightning rod to see just everyone jump all over this line. And this is all he said. Don't forget to pray for African-Americans as they try to get some exercise this weekend. I mean, that was like a, a lightning rod. And people were like, we're not all murderers. And I mean, it was like, what do you really think? Like, do you really have a problem with what he said? And do you understand like what, what is going through other people's minds right now? Dude's out for some exercise and ends up getting shot in the chest twice with a shotgun. And why are we not all up in arms about it? It's interesting, Pete. Um, the, uh, the guy, the worship pastor who got killed by the by the white lady by the cop like a year ago was it right yeah um and then this scenario with Ahmad and then there was just a black EMT girl who just got murdered eight uh, 16 18 or eight shots or something like that and let me tell you okay so so when your friend posted that it's so crazy when something like that happens in America or in the United States um so, so for example, when that guy got shot, the worship guy got shot. Do you know that very same night I had got a knock on my door and I almost didn't want, even want to answer the yeah. door out of fear. 
like like for real fear. And so when when the Ahmad story broke, I went out when I when I wrote that blog, Peyton, and 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 it was it's like this subtle fear that is in me that that I didn't even realize because of how other African-Americans are what they're experiencing. And it's just, it's trickling across America. And so when he put a post up like that, he, I mean, like he's being very, very serious. There's some underlying fear that's in the heart of black, of blacks right now. Cause we don't know, like, you know what I'm saying? We don't, yeah. we really honestly, like we, I don't know, like I can go out for a walk today and I don't know. And, and when you get to a place where you were, where you're like, like in a in a in the United States where you don't know if you're gonna, you know what I mean? Like that is scary, man. You know? Yeah. yeah. People don't realize that. They don't realize that when you're um, pulled over by cops or you know, um, it's a different it's a different experience that you're gonna have than I'm gonna have when you get pulled over. I mean, a cop can still be a jerk, but I don't feel in danger of my life when I get pulled over. Um, and that cop is probably not thinking I'm going to pull that white ball dude over and he's going to shoot me. But when you watch what's happened in this, in this country, you see that often cops, you know, and, and people have been conditioned. You bring it up in your article that, that people fear black people and it's, it's wrong. Like, you know, I, if I go to your Facebook profile, you look like you have a nice family. You're an entrepreneur. You know, all, all these things that, you know, it's there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, man. And, and this is where I think, you know, for, for those of us, and one of the reasons we have you on here is uh, as white people, we don't know. We just don't know. Like, I, I, I think that part of the journey that, that all of us are on as we start to come together as a church is to listen and to learn. Because these are things that I, I think more in the age of social media have started to get raised. I, I think that's been powerful, you know, but um, because the main mainstream media wouldn't ever share this stuff in the past. You know, I mean, things have changed and times are changing. But um, Myron, what what kind of things I know we mentioned your blog, but what what are some other things that people can do, um, particularly people that are non-black um, what, what are some things that they can do in the wake of a tragedy like this? One of the statements I made <clears throat> is, um, is ask the question, who have I become? Because and Pete Scazzaro said this uh, um, at, at the Exponential Conference in this past March, where he was really hitting on, you know, he really, he really hit on, he really kind of badgered the whole, I do you watch, I do you help. You remember that? And he, he, he went to IBU, you know what I mean? And he, he focused on IB, the IBs. And so I think it gets back to, I think we need to do an honest, honest assessment. Paul said um, to, to, to look at and evaluate whether or not we're in the faith. And I would say we need to look at who are we, in light of where are we? Like, who have I become? Am I, am I, I said this in the book, you got to get the book. It's amazing. I said, um, are you, there's always two sides. 
I'm either building a system that ex- that's exploiting a group of people or I'm on my Harriet Tubman and I'm freeing people through a system from a system of exploitation. And so I think we have to begin asking the question, God, um, are you pleased with who I am? And if not, what needs to change? And oftentimes we don't know what we don't know until we get a mirror before us. And the best mirror is a person who doesn't look like us because they're going to reveal that thing in us. And so relationship matters. One of the things I'm doing is um, after I launched the book, I'm doing a four week cohort, right, of black people and white people together. And we're going to digest it. We're going to digest what I talked about and we're going to allow for safety. That's one of the things white people say. They like, man, I don't know if I can really can I really say what I can I really ask? I have some questions, but I don't know if, I, if I'm free and safe to ask it. And so I think we need to begin birthing pockets of cohorts that can address the issues of race. And another cool thing is after the, after the cohort, I'm going to facilitate um, a workshop whereby people can learn how to tell their own story through books. And so if we can get thousands and thousands of books out, of people sharing their stories on race, we can actually change the conversation on race. Love so it. Can, what, you know what I mean? So those are just a couple Good. of things. Um, my blog gives a, gives you kind of 10 things you can start doing as well. And then I go deeper into that. Um, on, that's good, man. Well, guys, check out, he's got that new book dropping on the 20th. Check out myronpierce.com. Again, that's M-Y-R-O-N-P-I-E-R-C-E, myronpierce.com. And our guest has been, of course, Myron Pierce. And uh, it's it's been a pleasure to have you, brother. I, you know, you mentioned one thing, and I'll I'll close with this, and then um, segue uh, out out of here. And uh, it's going to be offensive when I segue to uh, all those who love the scripture. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll try to control myself here. But as you're as you're saying this, my mind went to James. We were just saying, am I building a system for this? Because this is so New Testament, right? Like. He says, come you rich, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your Like there's social justice hardwired into this James chapter five. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Uh, And he goes on, and this is where he has the exhortation, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Like, this is is serious talk from James here. And he's talking about how you do even your business, building those systems. And so, you know, it's amazing to me that as we, we keep having these conversations, as the awareness is raised, things start you know, you start seeing what you didn't see in the scripture before, but we're out of time. So I'm going to leave you with that verse, but you know, Pete, while you're doing all that waiting, I told you, (laughs) (laughs) I told you always our segues into our sponsors are the worst ever. And, and this one was no different. So I'm trying, I'm trying to control myself and not be disrespectful of the scripture, but I don't know how else to segue it. (laughs) So Pete, if, if during this, and I'm, and I'm running my business in a godly way, and I'm making sure I'm building something for the kingdom, how do I make sure, Pete, that, that my finances are getting taken care of? You know, Pam, I'm glad you asked. Uh, what you do is you'd reach out. To <laughs> I'm ashamed I asked. 
<laughs> you reach out to simplifychurch.com and you go and talk to Josh over there. And Josh is going to help you simplify your church. He's going to take care of all your bookkeeping, your accounting needs, your uh, payroll, your IRS compliance. He does all of that for you. Simplifychurch.com. That's right. And just so you guys know, they do build things in a kingdom way. They're going to help you. They have a church planner package. So be sure to check them out, simplifychurch.com. This has been Peyton Jones and Pete Mitchell reminding you, if you want to reach the ones no one's reaching, you need to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music